afternoon. I'm Charles Lee. And I'm Elise Kovac. And this is the Grok Science Show. Coming up on today's program, we'll be joined by Ron Frost. He'll talk about religion versus science, the debate about evolution. So you want to stay tuned for all that, plus the Grokatron 5000 is coming right up here on the Grok Science Show. Science show. Well, the debate over evolution often appears to be unending. The particular clashes between religious and scientific points of view are oftentimes bitter and acrimonious, but the sources of the friction often go overlooked, oftentimes leading to the question if both sides can be reconciled. Well, joins to discuss this issue is Professor Ron Frost. Professor Frost is a professor at the University of Wyoming studying ancient geological processes. He's the author of numerous scientific articles and most recently has penned the new book Religion versus Science, where both sides go wrong in the great debate on evolution, and he joins us today to talk about this uh, very fascinating topic. Professor Frost, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok's Science Show. Well, thank you for inviting me. Certainly our pleasure, and this is really a, a fascinating book, Religion versus Science, where you talk about where both sides go wrong on the debate on evolution. I'm wondering if you can maybe uh, set up why the source of friction between... <laughs> it's actually quite complex, isn't it? There's a very simple answer, perhaps, that people who are biblical literalists don't like the concept that the earth has a very long history. And for some people, that is the total cause for the the debate. The other possibility is an awful lot of religious people who are very uncomfortable with the way that many biologists depict life. In other words, to a lot of scientists, the basic ground premise is that there is no spiritual dimension to life. And from there, they build up the whole science of biology. So that is my basic premise in the book, is that there are two fallacious approaches that cause most the acrimony. And so from the side of the religious, the main point of contention is really this focus on biblical literacy. I would say there are is a population of religious people that are what we call young earth creationists. Biblical literacy is paramount in the way they interpret their whole religion. There is a large number of religious people, Christians and others included, who aren't necessarily biblical literalists, but who have a very basic disagreement or uncomfortableness about the way that life is depicted as being totally mechanical with nothing spiritual to it. And that, I think, is where the scientists go wrong, is trying to say that science can say anything about a spiritual dimension to life. The philosophy of science is grounded in experiment and observations. Exactly. It's one of these, I don't know if catch-22 is quite the right term for it, but if you assume that the only way we can do science, which is, I'm a scientist and I quite agree with this, the only way you can do science is to have these various assumptions about how the process works, 
then it gets very, very sticky if you try to throw in any spiritual aspects to it. So it's much simpler just to say there is no spiritual dimension. Then it becomes much simpler to put out theories, to propose tests for these theories, and to test them. Fires to say that there's a spiritual dimension to life, it is not something that I could test scientifically, no matter how brilliant I was. And therefore, a lot of scientists would just assume stay away from that point. Rightly so. It's not within kind of the purview of science. Exactly. But if you're talking about evolution and you're talking about life, someplace along the line you have to realize the fact that aspects to life that science cannot touch. And there may be aspects to life, to the evolution debate that science cannot test. Is it really the case, though, that biologists in their explanation of evolution push that part of the view of life is removed from any kind of spiritual dimension, or is it just rather more agnostic to the idea? Now, that's a good point. There are some who are very strongly atheistic, uh, and Richard Dawkins is a good example. His book, uh, The Selfish Gene, sort of implies that we're nothing but a bag of chemicals meant to carry our genes around. That's pretty materialistic and quite a depressing view of humanity. There are others who, as you say, are agnostic about it. But I think it is this aspect, this, well, a lot of neo-atheists are scientists, and a lot of them are biologists who say that evolution proves there is no God. And science can prove nothing, and it certainly can say nothing about a spiritual dimension. A valid point. Again, the the source of the friction is really that the religious vein would feel that if you held sort of this view of evolution, then there's no kind of moral imperative to your life. Would you say that this is a valid view to have, even if one believed in evolution? Here again, there are comments in the literature which says that there is no way that evolution could produce a moral being. But the question is, is there other aspects to this whole process that cannot be described in a purely materialistic manner? That's where we get really tricky, because if you start with a premise, there is no spiritual dimension to life, and you use the other premise, evolution proceeds by natural selection, your reasonable conclusion is that life is essentially meaningless. If you start out with a premise that there's a spiritual dimension to life, and it's manifested mostly in our consciousness, and that life evolution proceeded by natural selection, you get a completely different view of how evolution proceeded, the importance of evolution, and the importance of your consciousness and human beings. And both of them are based upon the same scientific facts. That is the mechanistic explanation of, of evolution by natural selection. By natural selection. If you use the same scientific fact, you can come up with a theory that says life is essentially meaningless, or you can come up with a theory that says that evolution has been progressive opening into the spiritual realm by material beings. And you cannot distinguish between the two of them scientifically. So the, the point of contention really should not be around the evidence, the scientific evidence, which almost indisputable that evolution seems to be progressing in this manner, but rather the pre-assumptions of what is causing this evolution, spiritual nature or a-spiritual a nature. Absolutely. The facts of evolution are indisputable. And if you look at it in detail, it's amazing how robust it is. I mean, not only paleontology, but geochemistry, genetics, biochemistry. There's a whole 
slew of sciences that meld together to make a very robust picture of evolution. So the big mistakes the creationists make, or even the intelligent design folk, is to attack the facts of evolution rather than the materialistic premise and structure upon which the theory is built. So when one then changes the point of view in terms of looking at this materialistic aspect on which it's all built, rather than putting it more of a spiritualistic aspect, you say, then the two can be reconciled. Absolutely. So now you can't reconcile a view of young earth creationism with this, but you can certainly reconcile what I would say is the beliefs or doctrines of most world religions with the scientific facts of evolution once you drop the materialistic lens to which the theory is usually presented. So elements of this argument somewhat reminiscent, analogous to that proposed by that of the intelligent design movement. Is this different from that philosophy, or how is it distinct? That's a good question. In many respects, it's quite distinct, because one of the first premises of the intelligent design movement is that biological processes are too complex for us to understand, and that natural selection cannot have proceeded because there's certain steps along the way whereby you get half an eye, for example, and that half an eye would be of no use, and therefore there'd be no evolutionary advantage to having it. I would say that the facts of evolution are solid. You know, it's not something to dispute. However, if you, if you go into the spectrum of ideas that would say, hey, there's a spiritual dimension to evolution, certainly on one far end of that spectrum would be intelligent design. As long as the intelligent design says things that are not disputing the, the evidence of evolution. Another side of that spectrum would just be that evolution is proceeded into this spiritual domain, and just like evolution produced things that could fly four times, and the way evolution has allowed animals to exist in everything from boiling water to ice, evolution also developed a being that could exploit that spiritual domain. And that doesn't mean there's anybody designing it at all. Uh, it's, it's still sort of difficult to see how the spiritual domain that you, you talk about actually fits into this picture. How can we have a picture or conceive of this, this idea? Well, it's very hard. What I tried to do in the book is I tried to sort of describe something that was essentially would be compatible with almost any religious tradition. And we don't know anything about the spiritual domain. People who are really religious have experienced religious experiences. They've developed doctrine to try to understand it and to describe it. But there is no way you could use scientific reasoning or experiments to determine what it is. Tehard, the Chardin, who actually posed this idea 50 years ago, said that the way we recognize this existence of the spiritual domain is the fact that with evolution, beings become progressively, well, beings get progressively more complex neurological systems. And those neurological systems are to tie us into what essentially manifests as our consciousness. The spiritual domain, whatever it is, manifests as aspect of our consciousness. And that is a um, concept that agrees with most religions, from Buddhism to Christianity.
If it does that, then obviously something that's more conscious is also better adjusted to evolution, and that would suggest that human beings didn't evolve as a mistake, but their uh, appearance on this earth was almost predetermined. Uh, Aren't there more naturalistic or simpler explanations for the evolution of consciousness in, in humans, that which leads to their selective survival advantage? Absolutely. This is one of the interesting things. I mean, I'm a Buddhist. One of the things about Buddhist practice is to recognize the nature of your mind. One of the aspects of your mind that you recognize after you've done enough Buddhist practice is that there are aspects of it that come from outside your body. Cognitive scientists are 100% materialist. Everything in your consciousness they can see as little electrical reactions in your brain. They cannot even conceive of the fact that some of these things could be, or some of the aspects of consciousness could come from outside that brain. In other words, instead of just being a transmitter, the brain is also a receiver. And that is something that cognitive science cannot uh, conceive of. But it's also something they can't disprove. This harkens back to a lot of dualistic philosophies, separation of mind and body. A major issue in those type of philosophies is where's the intersection then between the outside influence and the inside influence? And that intersection at some level must be materialistic, no? Well, it's very interesting, you know, because Buddhists are monists, essentially. There's only one thing in the world, and materialists are monists. They say, hey, there's only one thing in the world, and it's very obvious, it's matter. And Buddhists say there's only one thing in the world, and that's mind. And matter is just solidified mind. And I don't know quite where to go between the two of them, except for the fact that I know from meditation that there are aspects of my mind that have arisen outside of my ego. Concepts and insights that arose spontaneously. Creativity would be something, uh, according to people like Henri Bergson, that arise spontaneously from outside of you. A lot of neuroscientists, of course, would might argue that these kind of emergent properties are just due to the complexity of the human brain, and so very yes, indeed. Yeah. But with the rising complexity of the human brain, what is the emergent property? Is the emergent property the ability to produce consciousness or the ability to access it? And there's no way that you can test either of those theories. So what the cognitive scientists do is they drop one of them and say, well, that doesn't exist, and we'll just worry about this business of it producing consciousness. Hmm. Emergent complexity enhances the ability of the brain to act as a receiver for this. Exactly. Hmm. And just as invalid to say that there is no, well, let's just put it this way, just as invalid to say that it's only God that's making your consciousness work as it is to say that it's all materialistic processes. Our problem is that once we get to an assumption that there's a transcendent aspect to mind, we get to the point that we cannot test it. So scientists, rather than deal with that, just say it doesn't exist. But that doesn't mean it doesn't exist. It just means that they can't deal with it. It makes for a very tough problem to deal with. And one of my arguments in the book is maybe we should all have a little more humility. There's stuff out there we just cannot understand. Science is a really great way of understanding the material world, but once we start stepping into the whole question of mind and consciousness, things get very, very difficult. 
a challenge. So I think most scientists, uh, in terms of the range of problems that uh, science feels like it can address, philosophy of science tends to be that anything that exists in the material world can eventually be understood. Yes, but that's a bit of hubris, isn't it? Right. <laughs> Indeed. This is a very fascinating conversation. Unfortunately, we're, we're running out of time. But I, I'm wondering if maybe you can close with final words regarding the, the two sides of this debate and uh, where you see avenues for further exploration and perhaps reconciliation between the two sides. Well, I guess I could say, you know, both sides are right when they say that the present way that evolution is presented implies there is no spiritual, there is no God. But, I've just showed that there are ways that you could present evolution that makes it compatible with the existence of transcendent consciousness. And that until science drops this hubris and says, yeah, there are ways that evolution could be presented that would fit in with what religion knows, then the, the debate is going to go on. Once that admission comes out, then people can actually start looking at some way to um, use both science and religion to understand it. So a bit of humility for both sides is in order. Absolutely. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, the new book is called Religion versus Science, Where Both Sides Go Wrong on the Great Debate on Evolution. Uh, Professor Frost, I want to thank you very much for your time. Thank you. And you're just listening to Professor Ron Frost discussing religion versus science, where both sides go wrong on the great debate on evolution. Stay tuned for Rockatron 5000. It's coming right up here on the Rock Science Show. And we've got something to say Well, it's time to play the game, the Grokatron 5000. It is our supercomputer, formerly known as Deep Blue. Today, the Grokatron 5000 has chosen the topic transcendent or banal. So, for the following five people, the Grokatron 5000 would like to know if you think they're more transcendent or uh, banal, and maybe a little reason why. Professor Frost, ready to play the game? Uh, as I said, I'll try. Okay, uh, well, here we go. Uh, person number one, transcendent or banal, it's uh, the basketball player Shaquille O'Neal. I would say that the way he plays is transcendent. <laughs> but maybe he's just banal. How's that? I mean, when he's in the zone, he's transcendent. <laughs> so transcendent within a limited sphere of... <laughs> exactly. Okay. So number two is the uh, pop star Lady Gaga. I have no idea who she is. <laughs> okay. So my idea of pop stars is it's pretty much banal. <laughs> All right. Well, that's probably a good estimation of the... All right. Well, number three, then, uh, the famed evolutionary biologist Richard Dawkins. You know, he's, he's a really nice guy. Mm -hmm. But I really couldn't say he's transcendent because he would feel that that would be an insult. <laughs> That's true. Uh, and I, I would put him in the middle because I don't think he's banal either. He's said some very important things. So I'd put him in the middle. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, number four, actress Lindsay Lohan. That's easy. That's banal. <laughs> okay. And finally, number five, uh, transcendent or banal, it's former uh, White House Chief of Staff Rahm Emanuel. 
Going to be your mayor of Chicago, maybe, huh? Uh, well, we'll see. <laughs> Boy, I don't know where I'd put him. I, I wouldn't put him for transcendent. And I don't think he's banal as Lindsay Lohan. I'd put him in the middle again. Okay. Yeah, in his own mind, he's transcendent. <laughs> <laughs> Professor Frost, I want to thank you very much for uh, sticking around playing the game. And again, of course, talking about the new book, uh, Religion versus Science, Where Both Sides Go Wrong on the Great, great Debate on Evolution. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Uh, well, this has been the Grok Science Show. I've been uh, your host, Charles Lee. And I'm Elise Govic. And we'll be back in soon more from the world of science and technology. And, and we'll miss you. We will. Write to us. We're on the web. Our web address www.groks.net. Uh, we're on Twitter, Facebook, and you can email us, science at groks.net. Have a great afternoon.